Did Israeli intelligence deliberately provoke a massive attack on Israeli civilians in order to provide a pretext for brutal retaliation in response? Are there links between the Israel's planned attacks on Gaza and the U.S. war on terrorism? Why are the Israeli attacks on Palestinians continuing even during the ceasefire between them? Are more films and media centered in Gaza itself beginning to turn around the U.S. mood toward Israel-Palestine? This week on the Global Research News Hour, as a follow-up to last Friday's show, 11 Days of Violence in the Last Month, we will explore the numerous obstacles which continue to shape the ambitions of the Israeli occupation and the lives of the Palestinian people 70 years after Nakba. We first speak with Professor Chosodovsky about the Daigon plan, the death of Yasser Arafat, and other variables setting the stage for Israeli violence. Then we get an update from journalist Robert Ninlakesh about what is currently happening on the ground between Israelis and Palestinians less than a week into the ceasefire. Finally, we hear from film producer Mike Preisner about his film Gaza Fights for Freedom. On this week's program, Israel post-ceasefire, when the dreams of Israelis collide with the hopes of Palestinians. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 28, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. May 31st to June 1st represents the 100th anniversary of the attack by white mobs against an entire African-American community in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This somber centenary is being marked with numerous press reports and television segments about a racist massacre which has been largely hidden since the 1920s. Previously coined as the Tulsa Riot, was in actuality a full-scale assault on the rights of African Americans to live in peace and stability in the United States. During the course of a two-day rampage by gangs of armed white men, accompanied by the police and National Guard, it is estimated that 300 African Americans were killed. In addition to the murders, hundreds of families had their homes, churches, fraternal organizations, and small businesses destroyed. That comes from the article, Tulsa Commemorates Centenary of 1921 Race Massacre, by Abiyoni Azikiwe, posted May 27th. (music) Beijing decided the sanctions after its officials were subjected to sanctions on the accusation, rejected by China, of violating human rights, in particular the Uyghurs' rights. EU lawmakers argued that while Chinese sanctions are illegal, 
because they violate international law, European sanctions are legal because they are based on the human rights defense sanctioned by the United Nations. What is the real reason behind the defense of human rights in China screen? The strategy launched and led by Washington to recruit European countries in the coalition against Russia and China. The fundamental lever of this operation is the fact that 21 of 27 countries of the European Union are NATO members under U.S. command. That comes from the article, Why the EU Sides Against China, by Manlio Dinucci, posted May 26th, originally published on Il Manifesto, translated to English from Italian. A key quote is buried on page 42. Quote, Among 3,410 total cases of suspected but unconfirmed COVID-19 in the overall study population, 1,594 occurred in the vaccine group versus 1,816 in the placebo group who received a saltwater shot. Unquote. Those shocking numbers have never seen the light of day in news media. The comparative numbers reveal that the vaccine was not effective at preventing COVID-19. It was certainly not 50% more effective than no vaccine at all, the standard for FDA emergency use authorization. That comes from the article, The FDA Cover-Up That Led to the Approval of the Pfizer Vaccine by John Rappaport. Posted May 26th, originally published on John Rappaport's blog. On Sunday evening, a group of people in Sisoda village in Barabanki district had jumped into the Seriu River after seeing a team of health officials. The health team had gone to the village to give COVID vaccination to the local residents. Subdivisional magistrate of Ramnagar Tessel, Rajiv Kumar Shukla, said about 200 people of the village ran away from the village because of the fear of vaccine and reaching the Siriu shore. When the health team reached the river, these people jumped into the river. Shukla said he made the villagers understand the importance and benefits of vaccination and tried to dispel the myths following which only 18 people in the village got the jabs. That comes from the article, India, vaccine drive in Uttar Pradesh goes awry. Villagers jump into river to evade jab. Posted May 26, originally published at umid.com. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The conquest of Gaza as part of a long, drawn-out maneuver. To, to take over the territory and genocide its population using major violence as a license. This view is shared by Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, Professor Chosodovsky, Professor of Economics at the University of Ottawa, a world-renowned and award-winning author. He's also director and founder of the Center for Research on Globalization and editor of Global Research. We started our conversation by exploring documented plans by Israeli intelligence to actually trigger Israeli civilian deaths in order to set up a pretext for violence against Palestinians. There were several 
intelligence operations starting in 2001, which was called the Dagan Plan. It was named after Mayor Dagan, who, who was uh, Minister of Defense at the time. Uh, it also was tagged as Operation Justified Vengeance. Now, the, the basis of these plans was on the part of the Israeli government was to trigger the deaths of Israeli citizens by provoking an incident. It could be, uh, it could be a suicide bomber attack by a group that they were controlling, or it was an attack to the, the Aqsa Mosque. But it was a carefully planned operation to trigger deaths of, of Israeli civilians with a view to justifying vengeance, so to speak. In other words, we have the right to self-defense, and that is the, the logic of Netanyahu's statements more recently. Now, uh, this is a diabolical plan, and it doesn't really, and it's still active. The objective has been to justify vengeance for the deaths occurring in Israel, which they provoked, and then use that as a pretext to uh, literally destroy Gaza. And according to a UN study a couple of years ago, Gaza has become unlivable. In other words, 70% unemployment, no infrastructure, no water, no food, and this is an open-air prison. Now, if we go back in history, uh, under, the, under the government of Ariel Sharon, uh, there was a plan to remove the Jewish settlements. Now, that removal of the Jewish settlements had a particular logic behind it. And I recall at the time that the Palestinians and and also those who supported Palestine were saying, oh, victory, victory. The Jewish settlements have been moved out of Gaza. But the operation was not necessarily against the Jewish settlements. It was to create a prison, essentially, uh, you know, a concentration camp. And what happened was that the Jewish settlements were resettled in the West Bank. Um, and um, following that, um, essentially Israel was there not only to, to impoverish uh, the people in Gaza, but also ultimately to trigger exodus. Now that exodus has not happened on a, on a significant scale, but ultimately that is there intent is to push people out of Gaza towards Egypt uh, eventually uh, and uh, and similarly they're doing the same thing in, on the West Bank but there were a whole series there's a whole history behind this and the creation of divisions between Hamas on the one hand and the Palestinian Authority on the other 
was fundamental. Well, Hamas won the elections and they wanted to form a government. Uh, but as we recall also at the same time, the Israeli cabinet and this, this people have forgotten or they haven't even the media hasn't reported it, even though at the time it was was even quoted by CNN. That uh, action on the part of the Israeli government was it was a cabinet decision and they confirmed it. They said, we're going to kill Arafat at the appropriate time and place. Okay. And it happened one year later. But I mean, when a government makes that statement, that of course is a, is a criminal act. Um, it's a crime against humanity to go around and kill a, a, a foreign head of state. It happens. I mean, the United States has killed how many heads of state, heads of government uh, in, in the course of, of the post so-called post-war period, but they don't say we did it. Okay. And in this case, the Israeli cabinet said, no, we're going to kill Arafat. And then one year later, he was killed. He was poisoned. And they, they, uh, then they invented some kind of a story. But they never came up with the fact, and the media didn't mention it, that Arafat had been, had been killed on orders of the Israeli government at the time. Okay, just if I could just stop you for a minute there. I mean, I, I think they were they had tests from uh, the Switzerland, Russia, uh, France, and all of the, them. They 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 didn't actually assume that it was a, a poisoning or assassination. It seems like a bit of a, a JFK assassination, if you know what I mean. It's, it's not quite determined. Well, it was. I think it was more than a JFK assassination because in this particular case. The, the Israeli government says we're going to do it. They, they passed a decision in cabinet. It was voted upon. And they don't deny it. I, I, have, I have the quotations on that. Okay. Now, and CNN had the quotations on it because they interviewed the members of the, of the Israeli government. And, uh, and when it happened, of course, then you sort of invent a, a JFK type of, of scenario and you forget the fact that in this particular case, the government had ordered it, the, the assassination of Arafat. Uh, but the, the, the purpose of that was ultimately to create uh, essentially two separate government entities, both of which were controlled directly or indirectly by, by Israel. Well, certainly today, Mahmoud Abbas is, a, is, a, is controlled by Israel. And uh, Hamas at one point was supported by Israel because it was uh, it was an Islamist um, um, movement, and um, and they saw that in the earlier period. And I'm not making a reflection on 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 a Hamas today, but at an earlier period, this was seen as a way of weakening the secular government of of, of the Palestinian Authority, and it, and and. Uh, in fact, the Palestinian movement has always been secular and it has been a movement also of Christians and, and Muslims. So that uh, this was this was um, carefully thought out intelligence op uh, to ultimately destroy any kind of governmental authority which, uh, which would represent the Palestinian people. And instead it was manipulated both by the United States uh, and um, and Israel. 
Now, talk about the major find of natural gas off the coast of Gaza, because uh, you know Israel had been seeking that gas while the United States was seeking oil and other uh, pursuits within this so-called war on terrorism. So I'm wondering, um, in their efforts to, to, to gain Gaza, if this was planned as like sequentially with the United States, I'll go after, we'll go into Iraq, you go after Gaza, the sort of thing, or, or, or was it more somewhat uh, in advance? Well, you know, there was a lo- there's a long history of, um, of the, the Gaza offshore um, gas reserves. Um, they, um, there, was a, there was a contract with British Gas at one point, but what is significant there is that these offshore gas reserves were acknowledged by the Israeli Supreme Court as belonging to Palestine. And uh, this, uh, of course, has never been respected by the Israeli government, who have, in fact, appropriated the 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 reserves and has undertaken um, contracts with with various uh, companies uh, without of course acknowledging the fact that these reserves uh, which are significant belong to the Palestinian people now that started under Prime Minister Ariel Sharon in 2001 more or less but those offshore gas fields uh, were, uh, were, were known at a much earlier period. Um, I wonder if you could talk more about uh, greater Israel, whether the, 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 it's expanding its borders, I mean, beyond like going through, you know, across Gaza, but also down through Syria and even a, a portion of Saudi Arabia. Uh, this is the ultimate objective, not the self-defense against Hamas, as, as is claimed. How would that greater outcome unfold after Gaza, according to plan, becomes part of Israel again? Well, the the greater Israel plan was um, analyzed or formulated by the founding father of Zionism, Theodor Herzl, uh, um, and that, of course, precedes uh, uh, it precedes the the state of Israel. Uh, but it was it consisted in establishing uh, a broader um, and and extended Israel, uh, which was the promised land from Egypt to the Euphrates, which would include parts of of uh, Syria and Lebanon. Now, uh, if we view this in the current context, there certainly is an expansionist plan as far as Israel is concerned, uh, which uh, consists essentially in uh, appropriating and annexing uh, Palestinian lands to the state of Israel. And that, of course, in the first instance includes uh, Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, but I should mention that, and there's been a lot of debate on that, is that this plan of the greater Israel, which also is coupled with 
the fragmentation of neighboring Arab states is part of a broader U.S. foreign policy design. It's a U.S.-Israeli expansionist project, which has the support of, which also has the support of NATO and of Saudi Arabia. Uh, and that the the structure of alliances have shifted. Now there's a Saudi-Israeli rapprochement, uh, which uh, which is supportive of Israel's expansionary objectives. But I should mention that, in effect, the United States calls the shots on this, and this—it's like Israel is Israel is uh, the junior partner in in the war on terrorism, in a sense. Well, Israel is a partner, and Israel is a de facto member of NATO. There was a uh, there was a an agreement signed between Israel and NATO. Um, I. Can't recall the exact date, but it was about 2003 or so. But the, the there's a protocol, not de jure, but Israel is part of NATO de facto, on the one hand, uh, and that of course is very important. But there's another element uh, in the wake of the 2008 2009. Um, invasion of Gaza, as we recall, which was a massacre, the United States came in and it was early 2009 and they installed a military facility. And it was an air defense system, uh, which was established uh, on Israeli soil and it was under U.S jurisdiction. And it was very clearly specified at the time uh, that this is our military facility and we control the air defense system. Now, what, what we must understand is that while Israel can undertake piecemeal military operations for major military operations, it requires uh, partnership with the United States. And invariably, large-scale operations, such as uh, the bombing, e.g. the bombing of, of Iran, would have to go through United States Strategic Command headquarters in Nebraska. It would be coordinated, and then there would be NATO. Uh, in other words, Israel is part of a broader military alliance, and ultimately, any kind of any kind of action against, e.g., Iran, would emanate, not would emanate from the Pentagon, uh, and uh, we can recall, for instance, back during the Bush administration, there was a, Cheney went on record and said, um, talking about Israel. They might do the dirty, well, I can't recall his exact terms, but in substance, he would say Israel could do the bombing for us. Yes, Israel could do the bombing for us. Now, um, I think that in the, in the history of, of U.S., in U.S. military history, um, the United States has always sought to have 
their wars conducted by their allies rather than by themselves. I mean, or they or they have some kind of UN auspices, uh, and uh, and NATO has served that particular purpose when we think of recent wars. So that I, I think that uh, I, I think that that is the the underlying agenda in the Middle East. The war on Iran was first uh, stated officially by um, Central Command Headquarters uh, in a document in the mid-90s, 1995, which said very explicitly, first Iraq, then Iran. It, it said it very explicitly, and they gave us a pretext access to Middle East oil. Now, that foreign policy agenda is still there. And uh, if Israel plays a role uh, against a neighboring Ar Arab state, it is doing it on behalf of, uh, of the United States. Yeah. Um, one, one last question, if I could. Um, you and uh, you, you had other uh, speakers, uh, Hans Sponick and uh, uh, Dennis Halliday, and, and you were putting together a, a war crimes tribunal at the Kuala Lumpur uh, war crimes, uh, uh, sort of the, the criminalization of this war effort. Did you want to explain that a little bit? Well, let, let me let me uh, give a background on that. Um, because it, it has a whole history. Uh, first of all, there was back in 2005, uh, the former prime minister of Malaysia, Mahathir Mohamed, took on the initiative to uh, establish uh, essentially a, a procedure. Well, it was called the criminalization of war. And it was a procedure and it was a commitment. And, uh, and that was established in 2005. Uh, it, it, um, we drafted a, um, a text. I was, I was part of that team at the time, together with, uh, with uh, Dennis Halliday was there, Hans von Sponek was there, and various other prominent um, um, uh, uh, analysts. And uh, that, in turn, subsequently led to the formation of what was called the Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Tribunal, uh, as well as the Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Commission. And the War Crimes Commission was essentially responsible for formulating the indictments uh, against, um, against war criminals. There were two cases which were dealt with was first was the was uh, a procedure of the Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Tribunal against uh, against the Bush administration, Bush Sheni et al. in regards to Iraq, and we had we had many witnesses that came in and and uh, uh, and provided testimony, and the second one was the was was against the state of Israel, which, um, uh, which was passed in 2013. And it was, a, it was a very important document because it also um, was based on 
on testimonies, on violation of international law, uh, and so on. And it, the commission was chaired by uh, the former prime minister of Malaysia, Mahathir Mohamed, who actually became prime minister subsequently in his, in his uh, in, uh, and recently uh, resigned about a year ago. But um, he chaired the commission and we came up with uh, an indictment directed against the state of Israel um, and the proceedings of that, of that, uh, of that war crimes um, and tribunal are, are on record, including the testimonies. We've been speaking to Professor Michel Chosodovsky, writer, commentator, and the director of the Center for Research on Globalization. As a follow-up, listeners should realize that the Kuala Lumpur Crimes Commission back in November came to the judgment that Israel had indeed committed acts of genocide and war crimes against the Palestinian people. You can read the complete 2013 judgment of the Kuala Lumpur Tribunal, Israel Charged with War Crimes and Genocide, on the website globalresearch.ca. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. The ceasefire is holding, but events on the ground seem to be intense and unraveling. With a report on current events, we are joined by Robert Inklakesh. He's a political analyst, journalist, and documentary filmmaker currently based in London. Robert, the media in our country talk about a ceasefire which is holding. What we don't see so much is the actions on the ground by Israeli soldiers directed at Palestinians. Could you describe these actions relayed to you by people on the ground? Well, the number one uh, most important thing to know about uh, the ceasefire is that it is currently an unconditional ceasefire on both sides. Uh, therefore, there has been absolutely nothing laid on the table um, in order to hold it. Uh, the ceasefire talks through the mediator Egypt had uh, broken down earlier in the week. Um, and since the ceasefire was implemented at uh, 2 a.m. on Friday uh, local time, so Palestine-Israel time, We've seen that from that very first day, Israeli forces had again entered uh, Masjid Al-Aqsa, the Al-Aqsa compound in the old city of Jerusalem, um, had continued to agitate and attack Palestinians near the neighborhood of Sheikh uh, Jarrah, um, which of course is set to be ethnically cleansed. They're targeting uh, 28 families. That's the Israeli court system. The Israeli government obviously approves of it. Um, and the justification they use for that is the absentee property law, which was implemented uh, in 1950. And that basically provides uh, Israel its so-called legal um, ability to take Palestinian property away. Um, and the courts there are still battling. And this is a key point. The, um, there's still court battles ongoing where settler organizations are attempting to take Palestinian property away from Palestinians and essentially replace them with uh, extremist Israeli settlers, many of which uh, the videos have revealed uh, are settlers from New York City um, who have little to no connection there, and of course, are there in violation of international law. 
East Jerusalem as well is an occupied territory. And although it was annexed in 1980 by Israel after they occupied it during the June 1967 war, uh, that annexation has not been recognized by the international community. The United Nations still considers uh, East Jerusalem as an occupied territory. Um, and therefore, their laws that they implement and try and justify why they take Palestinian properties away um, based upon discrimination. Um, and that's been well documented in Human Rights Watch's uh, most recent report in which they have concluded Israel is operating a system akin to uh, apartheid. It meets uh, the ICC's definition of apartheid. Um, and also in that report, they talk about discrimination um, and how that's set in through the Israeli legal system. And of course, as well, by extension, that discrimination also applies to Palestinians in what's known as the 1948 territories. So inside of Israel itself, Israel proper, as it's referred to uh, much to, uh, of the time. And then if we look into Israel proper as well with Palestinians uh, who possess Israeli citizenship, uh, earlier this week, uh, over a 48 hour period, uh, the Israeli authorities had came and uh, arrested and announced that they had an arrest campaign with 500 Palestinians on a list um, in order to sort of put down the uprising and punish Palestinians for having uh, created this uprising throughout all of the territories of Palestine. Um, then on top of that, we have the ongoing arrest campaigns inside of the West Bank, uh, settler attacks, which are rampant inside of the West Bank. And we have to understand that the settlers are not independent from the state. Um, the settlers are there with the full backing of the Israeli government. And in fact, Netanyahu has aligned himself with these uh, extremist right-wing settlers um, and their movements, and specifically the religious Zionism party, which he was trying to please and therefore uh, ran into the recent confrontation with the resistance forces in Gaza. Uh, when we look at the Gaza Strip as well, um, and if we're trying to uh, analyze this in terms of what, uh, how this affects the ceasefire, uh, the defense minister or minister of war for Israel, Benny Gantz, announced that if there was going to be uh, the allowing of uh, reconstruction material to go inside of the Gaza Strip to rebuild many of these high-rise buildings, much of the middle-class areas, the factories, uh, electrical facilities, water facilities, um, and the likes, then in return, the armed resistance must hand over the bodies of killed occupation soldiers who were taken, their bodies were taken in 2014. This is akin to collective punishment. Of course, the resistance factions there will not accept this uh, purely because if they're going to trade those bodies, they want the bodies of hundreds of Palestinians who are also, uh, their bodies are held uh, by the Israelis uh, unjustly um, and without uh, any uh, justification under international law and also prisoners. Uh, there is roughly around 5,000 political prisoners, more or less, held by Israel at the moment. Um, and that statistic, uh, roughly before this latest escalation, there was around 4,500. Um, we don't know the exact statistics now because we need updated statistics as to how many political prisoners are still there. Many uh, are held in administrative detention. That means without a charge. Um, and so the the Israelis are attempting to escalate the situation. That's what we're seeing now. In response from Gaza, we've seen these uh, incendiary balloons, uh, you know, launched into Israeli farmland. Um, but it looks like the talks are breaking down. 
the ceasefire is uh, deteriorating, and it's only a matter of time until this escalates again. Is this ceasefire and the actions of the soldiers, is it consistent with, uh, you know, provoking it further and, and increasing it to the point that it collapses again? Or, or is, are their actions somehow springing from Palestine's determination to stand in solidarity? I mean, some sense that maybe Israel itself is getting frustrated. Um, if we're going to look at this in all honesty, Israel could have uh, significantly, uh, let's say, put out the fire um, in terms of uh, Palestinians and their, uh, their sentiments uh, against uh, the occupation. Um, at the very start of this, uh, when we're looking at the way that this started, Netanyahu could have called off the settler march. Uh, up to 30,000 settlers were said to have wanted to take place in this march uh, where they were going to storm uh, the Al-Aqsa compound. Uh, and of course, his occupation forces were entering uh, the Al-Aqsa compound uh, from the Friday until the Monday where things escalated during that period. And again, we're seeing that the Israeli courts are still holding on and not throwing out the cases to uh, expel Palestinian families from their homes to make way for the illegal settlers to come in, uh, not only in Sheikh Jarrah, uh, but also in the neighborhood of uh, Betan al-Hawa, which is located in Silwan, which is an area inside of East Jerusalem also, where eight families uh, just today, the court postponed for two weeks uh, an appeal made by Palestinian families to retain their homes. Um, after last year, there was a court ruling in favor of uh, the uh, Israeli settler organization attempting to uh, take them away from their homes and confiscate their properties. And so Israel could do away with these uh, court rulings to take Palestinians out of their homes to ethnically cleanse them. Israel could... Uh, of course, uh, put a cap on its settlers and their projects, Israel could very easily um, allow the construction goods to come back into Gaza and shore up the ceasefire. It's in a position to do so, but I think because a massive political defeat was inflicted upon Israel, the Israeli government and military uh, during this latest round due, uh, due to the steadfastness of the Palestinian people and a unified front of resistance, which uh, incorporated uh, popular protests, um, of course, as well, uh, a general strike and uh, armed resistance as well, as well as sit-ins and other different actions which were taken. Israel is feeling under pressure. Uh, its political leadership is under pressure. A military uh, defeat in, in, a, uh, in a form, in a way, um, and also a huge political defeat has been dealt to Israel. And therefore, I think that they're trying to escalate this again and trying to draw Hamas, Islamic Jihad, uh, the PFLP and all the other factions that are together um, in the Gaza Strip into firing the first uh, rocket. Um, if they are to escalate it, then perhaps Israel is looking for some sort of diplomatic cover, uh, immunity for a little bit longer to get away uh, with a, another offensive action, but their options are really limited as to what they can do in the Gaza Strip. So it's a confusing time now, but definitely uh, as facts on the ground show, we see that Israel is uh, attempting to escalate the situation and this is going towards a breakdown of the ceasefire. It's very likely that at any uh, moment in any of the coming days or weeks, we could see this uh, significantly escalate.
Robert, we really appreciate your insights. Thank you so much for sharing them with our listeners. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. We've been speaking with Robert Inlakesh, a journalist from London, reporting from the Israel-Palestine scene. Mike Preisner, he's an Iraq war veteran turned anti-war activist. He's co-produced The Empire Files with noted journalist Abby Martin. He also wrote and produced the film Gaza Fights for Freedom, a documentary exploring the territory from the Palestinian perspective. What made the story about Israel versus Gaza appealing for you? What, what drew that topic into your view? Sure. Well, you know, at The Empire Files, the the goal of the show is to kind of show how the world is really shaped and dictated and in every way by the existence of the U.S. empire, the world's and history's biggest uh, military machine uh, ever to be on the earth. And um, in one of the and, and that, of course, impacts every area of the world um, and every aspect of life in every area of the world. Um, and so the same is true for Palestine. Um, you know, I myself and Abby as well have been, you know, Palestine solidarity activists for a very long time. But the reason it was that topic was relevant to our show, The Empire Files, is because, as you mentioned, the, the reason that the United States invaded Iraq, occupies Afghanistan, uh, puts sanctions and, you know, economic pressures and threats against Iran. Um, for all of those, re the reasons that it does those things is the same reason that it funds and supports the Israeli regime as a proxy in the Middle East, this resource-rich region with all of these uh, independent uh, governments that the U.S. wants to uh, overthrow or weaken or uh, destroy at in best case scenario for them. So Lebanon, Syria, Iran, uh, Israel's geostrategic positioning is 100% it gets support from the United States. And not only is that the only reason that it, the US supports it, but the Israeli project would not be able to survive without that US support. And so all of the crimes against the Palestinian people are very much just an extension of uh, the, U the U.S. empire. And so whether it's the Great March Return, the wars on Gaza, the occupation of the West Bank, um, all of the things that we've covered, both in that film and on the Empire Files, are, you know, it's 100% the fault of the U.S. empire and the foreign policy of the American political system. Okay. Did you have any issues moving into Gaza from the Israeli side? Uh, actually, yes, uh, to the point where we did not get into Gaza. Um, that's the, you know, the, the funny story about the film is we were in the West Bank for about a month and we tried very hard to get into Gaza and we were credentialed journalists. Um, we had all the right uh, legal paperwork and everything, everything that you need to get approval to go into Gaza by the Israeli authorities. But the official response from the uh, head of the Israeli press office, who was appointed by Netanyahu, is that we were not journalists, despite our credentials, but that we were, in fact, uh, propagandists was one of the words they used. But the most alarming thing is we were accused of being Iranian spies. Uh, I don't know where that came from, um, but that was the basis on which we were denied access to Gaza, is that we were Iranian spies there to do propaganda work um, against Israel. And so we were banned from going into Gaza. Um, but when the Great March of Return started about a year later, um, Abby had a meeting with a, a, about 40 journalists in Gaza who were curious about how the march was being covered in the United States, which, of course, it was being covered 
uh, very badly, even though it was getting some sympathetic press coverage. For the most part, it was you know, doing the work of covering up Israeli crimes there. And so we decided to collaborate on a project that could tell the real story. And so we hired um, a team of about 10 journalists in Gaza to film and conduct interviews and do field production. We directed everything through the blockade, um, through poor internet access, hard to be able to talk on the phone and communicate and things like that. So we directed through from the United States uh, what was happening in Gaza with our team there. And we had, had we had intended to just do a series of Empire Files episodes about the Great March, um, which, you know, lives on YouTube and, you know, a lot of people watch it. But, you know, it's it's this shorter episodic uh, style that we do for the show. But once we started getting the footage in over a period of many months, because, you know, as you know, Internet is so bad, it was very hard to even for them to send us the files of the footage that they were shooting and the interviews they were shooting. But once we once we really started to see what we had from these incredible journalists on the ground, we realized that we couldn't just do a few YouTube videos about it. We needed to drop everything and focus all of our energies on making a real feature length film, um, which is what we did. It took us about a year. We kind of stopped production of our show, rented an office, hired a small team, production team here. And we spent, um, you know, a better part of that year doing nothing but working on this film and then released it and then went on a huge tour where we tried to show it everywhere we could around the country in theaters, which um, was surprisingly successful because I think 10 years ago, we would absolutely not have had that kind of response to a movie about Gaza. So you were fairly reliant on the, the filmmakers and the journalists within Gaza. Um, and, and I mean, to, to what extent, I mean, were you giving them questions to, to put to people or was it all their work? And then they say, here you go. Here's, here's what we've got. No, we um we said the types of people we wanted interviewed and we wrote the questions for it. And, you know, of course, the protests saying that we wanted as much protest footage as they could get, which, of course, was a, a complicated request for us because we knew it was you're risking your life to go out and cover the protests. And so we very much did not want our, our team to do anything dangerous and and anything that would get them killed. Um, but they were I think they took the initiative to uh, really push the limits of the type of footage that they could get. Um, but right in terms of the interviews and all of that, that that was all, you know, our thinking of who what types of people we thought were important to interview. Um, and and of, but of course, they we they were such a huge part of it. I mean, we if we went by and it almost the film is better because we weren't able to get into Gaza. I think if we were able to get into Gaza and, and we were just there doing everything, it, it would not have turned out the way that it did because it was Palestinians telling their own story, shooting themselves in the way that they want to be seen. And all of that is what made it so strong. And for example, you know, we interview all of the family of, of Razan al-Najjar, um, you know, the, the young female medic who was murdered by Israeli snipers at the march. And, you know, they were very skeptical and angry at Western press. You know, it, we probably it, it would have had a harder time getting them to talk to us. But our, our team, um, you know, we assured them that we were going to do, pos you know, uh, tell the story correctly of Razan's death. And I think it, without our team there um, vouching for us and making them comfortable, we wouldn't have been able to uh, get the footage that we did with them, which was so important because there is really nowhere else that tells the story of Razan's death except for a New York Times 20 minute 
true crime documentary where they essentially try to prove that her death was an accident and that Israel did not mean to and they shouldn't be blamed for it. And so that was the only point of reference they had of coverage in the American press. And so even for that alone, I feel very happy for what we were able to do because now her real story and who she was and what happened to her is on record forever. All of these volunteers, I mean, including all of those other volunteers who got killed or injured, but you focused on on Rizan in particular. What was it about her that made it important to, to profile to the extent that you did? Yeah, you know, that's, I mean, that was one of the, the kind of um, stylistic things we did with the film is where it begins focusing in on one family, Ahmad Fraish Sabo and his children. Um, and, and you have this very zoomed in what it's like for daily life in Gaza for one person. And then for the rest of most of the film, it zooms out and you have this overall view, the numbers, how many people are killed, how many people are wounded, how many people are living with food insecurity. And you have the, the big picture of all the, the boring statistics and all that stuff. But then for the end, it zooms back in against us uh, to a single person and the experience of her family dealing with the loss, her friends dealing with the loss, the circumstances of her death. And all of that. And so the, the reason that we bookend it with personal stories is to say that we could have picked anyone. It didn't have to be Razan. We could have picked anyone killed at the Great March of Return. And you would have had the same harrowing story of a, a blatant murder by Israeli snipers. You would have had the same family members and friends and colleagues who were mourning that death. Um, and so it, it could have been anyone but Razan. But I think the reason that we felt it was important to highlight Razan is because she had become well-known in the American press before her death. I mean, there was a, a major New York Times profile about her. There was photos of her all throughout the media. I mean, she just, um, and it is because she was an especially bold and heroic person. She was one of the first female medics to go out to the march. Um, and and she, was, she was not just there kind of helping wrap wounds. She was like on the front lines dealing with the worst casualties and approaching the fence, which is what, Israeli snipers shoot people for is going near the fence, uh, a war crime to do that to medics or to anybody. Uh, but they, but you know, she was there knowing that this would happen, and um, and also like you know, she was uh, got attention because she was criticized by some because they thought should there shouldn't be women medics there, things like that. But she really like pioneered the surge of of women volunteering to be medics uh, at the march, and she had she had an important historical role. And, and what had developed there. Um, and not only that, but be, be, her death got so much media attention that there is this huge propaganda campaign by the Israeli government and military to wash away what happened, the crime of what happened. And so, you know, we, we felt that it was a significant story to cover as an individual, even though, of course, you know, over 200 other people died and many of them, you know, there is a, a much smaller number of medical workers. I think about three medics who were performing medical tasks were killed as opposed to people who were just killed for protesting. Um, but her story was just so big before she was killed. And then afterwards, everyone just got this super sanitized uh, you know, distorted version of what happened that just took the side of the Israelis. And so we felt that that was a powerful tool to help people understand the extent of Israeli propaganda. To see the Israeli propaganda film they released after her death, where it's an apparent confession that she was a human shield, and then seeing the actual video where she is not saying that at all. And so when, when people can remember something in their memory, oh, I remember this story, I remember how the press betrayed it, and then see the real side of it, it helps make you realize that all of the things you hear about Israel and Palestine 
is through this distorted filter. Now, in, in May of 2021, there, there's been another explosion of violence. Given what you knew of the place two years ago, what levels of anguish has the country sunk to now? Well, it's become much worse, of course. I mean, it's constantly degrading anyways, but whenever there's bombing, it becomes much more difficult. For example, you know, Israel bombed all of the power plants and power lines, so there's no electricity, and now they are banning through the blockade a fuel for generators um, and uh, electricians to be able to come in to rebuild, um, you know, the power supply. Uh, and so it's part of this, this attempt to make life in Gaza as miserable as possible, but it's always exacerbated by the bombing because, you know, it takes many years for all of this infrastructure to be rebuilt. And then in the meantime, they deprive them of the things to help get them through that period for when the, the infrastructure can be uh, back up and running. And so this is characteristic of every bombing campaign in Gaza, you know, bombing farmland, bombing water treatment, bombing power plants. <clears throat> you know, this is all stuff that uh, the U.S. Uh, pioneered, especially against Iraq in the 90s, bombing food supplies, farmland, water treatment and electricity. And, you know, as a result of that, you know, almost a million children died in Iraq as a direct result of first bombing water treatment and then second denying medicines in to treat young babies uh, with uh, diseases associated with not having clean water. The same thing's happening to Gaza. Um, and the same potential for that scale of of death is uh, is the same. And so it's important to recognize that these are not, you know, Israel likes to couch everything in self-defense. But when you really look at their actions, it's very much calculated to uh, create suffering among a, a civilian population. Um, and, and on the one hand, to collectively punish them for uh, daring to liberate their own territory in 2005 and kicking out Israeli settlements and the brutal Israeli military occupation. But on the other hand, it's, it's ultimately they want everyone to, they want to make life so miserable that everyone will leave one day. And this is the same as their policy in the West Bank and increasingly their policy for uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel. Their, their whole worldview is we need to make life as miserable as possible for Palestinians so that they will leave the land and then we can take it all over. You captured the footage of the Western press and, and showed how it was clearly biased toward the Israel-Palestine situation. So the fact that the people of Gaza are getting to tell their own stories and not just relying on someone outside to report it honestly, is the general public cluing into the deceptive nature of media part of what's happening to, to attitudes about Israel-Palestine? Because, I mean, even, you know, majority attitudes are, are, are now more in favor of Palestine than in previous years. Is that awakening the key to resolving this situation. It is. And I think over the past two weeks, we have had a breakthrough. Um, uh, in fact, I believe it's a it's a point of no return uh, for Israel um, or the beginning of the end for the Israeli project. Um, you know, as you mentioned, during the Great March, there was really bad media coverage. Um, but there's been little hints that things were changing, of course, among the population. Um, and also in the media, which, of course, is such a key component to that. Um, you know, of course, the Gaza war in 2014 was highly criticized, but there is still, you know, kind of lockstep defense from the media about Israel's right to self-defense. Um, but then you have some things start to happen that kind of shift public opinion. I think that the Black Lives Matter movement, which uh, really began with with Ferguson, 
had a major impact. There was this immediate solidarity between uh, the Black freedom struggle and the Palestinian freedom struggle um, and a, a collaboration and, and talking about how you uh, combat tear gas and, and things like that. And, and the Black Lives Matter movement has very much um, you know, which they didn't have to do. They could have just very easily said, oh, we're just going to focus on our own struggle and and not uh, muddy it with other issues that might alienate people. But the BLM movement, which got, got nationwide sympathy, tried to connect uh, the struggle of the Palestinians to be seen in the same light, which I think helped a lot of Americans realize that, oh, I, I'm against this racist police brutality, but it looks like what's happening to the Palestinians is is the same thing that happened to, to George Floyd and, and so many other people subjected to these police murders. Um, but also there's other moments. Like I, if you remember in uh, 2017, 2018, the arrest of Ahed Tamimi, the, a young Palestinian child who was sentenced to a year in Israeli prison. Um, and that got a lot of media attention in the US and a, lo a lot of these celebrities that are always out there uh, defending Israel whenever they're bombing Gaza were condemning Israel. Um, then, of course, you had the Great March of Return, which uh, was very difficult for uh, anyone to defend because it was just, oh, this is what happens when you peacefully protest in Gaza. I mean, it's not even a war. It's literally just a peaceful march and Israel still just kills this many, this such a high number of children and innocent civilians. Um, and and you know, like that, if you remember the 2016 Democratic National Convention, there were hundreds of delegates who brought signs that said, I support Palestinian human rights, and it kind of disrupted the convention, and, and they had to turn lights off on them and, and angle the cameras so you couldn't see the signs and things like that. So these were all little hints that something was changing under the surface. Israel's been very aware of this, and that's why they've preemptively gone and tried to pass all these anti-BDS laws in all these states in the United States, which is, you know, about more than half the states in the country have some kind of law against participating in BDS. That was a activity by the Israeli government to pressure state legislatures. So they've known that something's been bubbling under the surface. But I think we really got to see the true extent of it as soon as the the assault on Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem and then the, on Al-Aqsa Mosque and then the Gaza war. Uh, it, I think I've seen more so than ever support for the Palestinian struggle and polling does reflect this for the first time ever. More people are siding with Palestine than with Israel. Um, we had the biggest days of protest in American history for Palestine. I think May 18th was the largest day of protest ever for the for Palestine in the United States. I mean, it was just so far beyond anything that had had been organized before. Um, and then you saw that start to break through the press as well. Uh, in fact, just two days ago from the time of this recording, um, the front or maybe it was yesterday, the front page of the New York Times was a story about Palestinian suffering under the Israeli occupation. And there are many more examples of the press, um, you know, having the types of headlines that you would not have seen a few years ago. And so I think all of these these things kind of play a part with each other. And there is. Uh, for sure, a major breakthrough that's happened that is representative of a broader shift uh, among the population. And that's why I think that is, I think people should be more optimistic now than ever about the potential uh, to see a free Palestine in our lifetime. Mike Preisner is an Iraq war veteran turned anti-war activist, a producer of the podcast Eyes Left and producer of The Empire Files. Uh, he joined us from Los Angeles. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio stations CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gaking, 
the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.